Well, well, if it isn't one of the controversial episodes that was pulled from the air last year. No, not because of mud masks, but because of the theme and title. With all of the stress we were feeling in 2020, it made sense that Hallmark didn't want to air an episode showing three older women at home, on the couch, struggling through a respiratory illness. But we're vaxxed, full of facts, and ready to eat snacks while walking you through today's episode, The Flu, or as it was originally titled, Flu Attack. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go, I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. In the kitchen, we're greeted with the real-life reenactment of the scene out of Disney's Sleeping Beauty when the fairies are all trying to make a dress for Aurora as we watch tiny Sophia in her yellow housecoat work on a dress Dorothy is wearing. Or at least I think it will eventually become a dress. It currently looks like 45 yards of dark purple velvet with a scarf of light blues and purples hanging off one side. Or as Coco called her, The Velvet Monolith. While trying to take measurements for what we hope will eventually become a dress, Sophia is harping on Dorothy to stand up tall. Before sharing a story about how, after moving schools in fourth grade, Dorothy was so tall the kids thought she was the sub. At 5'10", when the average American woman stands at 5'4", it's no wonder Dorothy was a bit self-conscious about her height. Blanche enters the kitchen, celebrating that she has just purchased a brand new silver glittery gown for the banquet the ladies are preparing for. While Dorothy thought Blanche would have been content wearing the same green one from last year, which, how could she possibly think that? Blanche pointed out it was too stunning to have been forgotten. According to Sophia, the dress wasn't memorable because of the coloring. If you asked people if they remembered what color it was, they would have said flesh tone. Hmm, silk? Green? Low cut. Was Blanche rocking the J-Lo dress before J-Lo? Ignoring the joke Sophia just made, Dorothy shares that her ma is cranky because she doesn't have a date for the banquet. But Sophia isn't dateless, as in she can't find someone who wants to go with her. She's just being picky about who she brings. Blanche is in the same boat. She's trying to decide who to choose out of her bounty to invite as her plus one. I had never watched Real Housewives until last year when Salt Lake City premiered. Holy cow, I cannot wait for next season and the Jen Shaw drama, but that's a different story. Anyway, after watching that show, I realized that's kind of the life of our girls. They plan parties with their friends, they have random charity events to volunteer with, and even have banquet dinners that are the social events of the season. This is not a life I have an understanding of. What I'm saying is there needs to be a Real Housewives of Miami parody starring the girls. Having to pick only one gentleman from her little black book, Blanche knows she's going to leave some men disappointed. And she hasn't disappointed this many men since her daddy tore down the treehouse. We can only infer here that the isolation of the treehouse mixed with Blanche's lack of inhibition, the treehouse was more of a cat house back in the day. 
Blanche's outfit has brought spring to the set, wearing a light corally pink jacket with a large floral print over a pink corally blouse with matching pants. Rose joins, also contributing to the lighter side of things, with a matching light blue pant and shirt set over a white tee. She's come to the kitchen seeking painkillers. Tylenol has been available for purchase since 1955, but it wasn't until the 1970s and 80s that the expansion of painkillers and the various ways of consuming them became commonplace. I can't find the exact info for aspirin, the specific pain reliever Rose is seeking, but I'm assuming the technology was similar. So when Dorothy starts listing the types of aspirin followed by the form in which to take them, capsule, tablet, liquid... It feels more like a joke about over-consumerism or companies going too far to make varieties of their products to sell more or something along those lines. Yes, Coco, you have something to add. Hearing Dorothy list off all of those medications reminded me of the good old days of of medicine commercials where they were all over-the-counter indigestion and pain relief. Yes. And there would always be a really cool animation of the pill being distributed throughout the body and that was always very comforting. Yes. Really made me think that like that Motrin was going to do it. That, mm-hmm. that bear. I, I still love that with Pepto-Bismol. They still show like a tummy outline, kind of old school. Coat my tummy, And it please. coats it and it's like, yeah, yeah, I need that. Nuprin. Rose settles for the time release but isn't sure which option to take. Sophia offers her advice. Don't use the childproof one. You'll die before you can get it open. Checking on why her friend needs medicine, Rose tells Blanche she's feeling achy. Dorothy is immediately panicked. What kind of achy? Head? Stomach? Back? Heart? While Dorothy interrogates Rose on what condition her condition is in, Blanche tells Dorothy to chill. Rose seems fine. It's probably just a little cold. But the sometimes selfish Dorothy doesn't hear her nor check on her friend to find out how she's actually feeling. Instead, she panics about how susceptible she is to colds, and even a light one for someone else could have her knocked down. Which is surprising to hear that from a teacher. My immune system has never been so good as when I work with kids. That's right, children. Protect me with your boogers. Dorothy continues through her medical list. She has a weak immune system. She tends to get anemic. Anemia is caused by a lack of iron, leading to a low red blood cell count. It can cause severe fatigue. Dorothy then cancels out everything she's just said when she agrees with her mother when she says, and you're a hypochondriac. Hypochondria is an anxiety disorder where you become completely preoccupied with the concern of becoming sick. Rose then does the unthinkable, the unforgivable. She sneezes. Dorothy's drapey dress works so well here as sort of a prop blanket she uses to protect herself in horror at the idea of being near the sickly Rose. Dorothy seems overreactive, not letting Rose even near her. But she did just tell y'all that she gets sick easily and she doesn't want to miss the dinner that's happening in just a few days. As much as all of this episode reminds me of quarantine, especially the sneeze, There were times when I would be out and I would sneeze in my mask and just immediately go, allergies, I have allergies. Because you could see people being like Dorothy going like. (gasps) Yeah, I have a pretty nice stonerish cough all the time. And I I worry about the same thing. I don't say anything. I just cough and give everyone mean looks. (laughs) (laughs) And I cough right at them. But I don't feel... um, as much like a burden to the earth as you do. Hey, this is not about personally attacking me. Thank you. 
You just got mad at me for complimenting you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Assuring Dorothy she knows her body, Rose promises she's not sick. It's probably just allergies. Not to mention she isn't a jerk that would feel sick and then walk around and hang out with her friends. Blanche hasn't a concern about it. She treats her body well and never gets sick. The term treating your body like a temple actually comes from the Bible. The long and the short of it is your body is home to part of Jesus or your God or whoever, so you treat your body as such. Temples are houses of worship. If the temple is used for Christianity, the temple is then referred to as a church. Like churches, temples are open to all. And while it's hard to find if temples in the 80s were open all hours because every search result is talking about reopening after COVID, I do know that older churches and temples are places that are open 24 hours to help those in need, or in Blanche's case, to pleasure those in need. Entering the house, we're greeted with a close-up of Blanche who is sitting on the couch in her blue interview with the vampire-inspired nightgown, who then lets out a huge sneeze. Panning to the right, we find Dorothy, who is holding her head and coughing. At the end of the couch sits Rose, who is blowing her nose. When we cut to a wide shot, we see all three on the tiny wicker sofa doing their best interpretation of see no evil, hear no evil, and say no evil. That term actually started as a Confucian phrase between the 3rd and 4th century. Back then it read, Look not at what is contrary to propriety. Listen not to what is contrary to propriety. Speak not what is contrary to propriety. Make no movement which is contrary to propriety. The phrase actually gained popularity in the 1600s in Japan when a shrine was carved depicting the phrase using the religiously important monkeys. In Buddhism, it represents protecting yourself from negative thoughts and behaviors. In the U.S. and other Western cultures, it's used more often as an implication someone is being willfully ignorant. Fun fact, there's actually a fourth monkey not often referenced, and he has crossed arms or hands over his genitals and says, do no evil. I like that guy. Why have we been denied the, the do fourth no monkey? Evil? I know. I mean, that's an important one. Even if you have your hands crossed of do no evil, like keep your hands to yourself. Don't harm other people. Or over your junk saying do no evil. <laughs> Moaning and groaning. The ladies are clearly quite sick. Dorothy in denim blue pinstriped pajamas under her yellow terry cloth robe, Rose in a light pink and floral robe. They look cute and comfortable, but also pretty miserable. With chills that are only multiplying, the ladies are sick with a pretty severe cold. Colds can be accompanied by a fever, but it is a mild one if it happens at all. Rose can't help but feel responsible for bringing the bug into the house. Dorothy gives a classic fake-out by first acting like it isn't Rose's fault, only to say it's her own fault for not having thrown Rose out of the house at the first sign of her being sick. Never one to be far from a mirror, Blanche starts staring at herself, taking inventory of everything that's wrong. Swollen glands, red nose, puffy everything. All of that, and she still looks amazing. Actually, given that this is the Blanchiest of Blanche quotes, and this is one for the books, we'll let her tell it. Oh, I feel just terrible. My eyes are all puffy, my nose is red, my glands are swollen. Isn't it amazing how I can feel so bad and still look so good? She really does look pretty good for being so puffy. 
Unconcerned with the pile of human illness on her couch, Sophia comes out from the hallway in her pastel rainbow-colored checkered dress adorned with a yellow apron, and she's distraught. She reached out to the biggest jerk she knew to invite him to the banquet, but he declined her offer. Dorothy asks the obvious question we all have on our minds. Why did you invite the jerk? Sophia's reasoning is quite simple. He's the only guy in his 80s that doesn't wear his pants too high. If you're ever looking for a fun Google spiral, I suggest typing, why do older men wear their pants high? There are some fun message boards about it. It's very scientific. Is it, is it because of their balls? <gasps> that older men might want to keep things aloft mm. higher than they used to be, you know. So you're saying in the, in the pants region, there might be something that isn't quite at the elevation it was before, and it you has want to started to you want to give sag it a, a with hoist, age. a hoist of, of uh, with fabric, and maybe that's it because that does change with age, and so you're holding your pants up tight. It's maybe holding stuff in place. That and. You know, you gain weight in your midsection and you can't really wear it way it's, below. So yeah. you go above the gut and next thing you know, you're at your nipples. It's sort of like, maybe like a girdle. It's sort of a containing oh, set yeah. of trousers. It's sort of a girdle without having one. That you could know, be it too. I definitely have pants that are tighter that I wear a certain way to like just, hold my tummy. Yeah. It, sometimes you need that. You're really on to some things here. Thank you. Actually, in talking about high pants, my grampy used to have quite the gut, and he was maybe five feet tall on a good day, and his pants were easily, like, to the bottom of his bust, often. And I agree with Rose. It's not so much that it's a bad look. It looks painful. So I think she's in the right on that one. I have a new theory. <gasps> it's not that the men's pants are so high that's they're by doing that they're um it's a little sleight of hand to to guide our eyes away from the fact that they have extremely short shirts what if here's another theory you're so used to pulling your pants to a certain you know the muscle memory of where to pull your pants but as you get older you shrink so you're still pulling the same amount but you've shrunk so now instead of your hips it's the nips The doorbell rings and Dorothy begs her mother through a stuffed nose to answer the door. Sophia agrees to do so, hoping the person on the other side could make her feel as lucky as living with Cary Grant. Cary Grant was one of the first major film stars from the golden age of Hollywood in the 40s and 50s. While born in England, he famously had a transatlantic accent that was often mimicked. While you might not have seen him in The Philadelphia Story or An Affair to Remember, you have definitely seen the scene from North by Northwest, wherein he's running through a field as a yellow plane is chasing him and drops low. He was funny, charming, beloved, and immensely talented. So yes, anyone that got to live with him would have definitely been lucky. Just ask his five wives. When the door is answered, it isn't a date for Sophia, nor is it Cary Grant. It's actually Dr. Richmond, played by actress Sharon Spellman. Sharon hasn't done much in the acting department since the mid-90s, but before that, she had extended runs on shows like Barnaby Jones and The Rockford Files, not to mention her appearances on shows like Rhoda, Quincy M.E., Sybil, and of course, La La. 
The Brooklyn side of Dorothy is rearing its blunt head when she sees it's Dr. Richmond who has made the house call, not the expected Dr. Harris. Well, his wife is having a baby. Well, Dorothy doesn't care. She's sick and she needs two things. One, her doctor. And B, to know what this new doctor will do for her. Dorothy is not very nice when she's sick. After not being very welcoming to the new doctor, she gets to work anyway, inquiring about everyone's symptoms. Rose has a fever, sore throat, and an upset stomach. She's also having a fever dream about being chased by a Listerine or mouthwash bottle. And when she screams, all she can do is gargle. Fun fact, my ma's home remedy for any sore throat, a mug, water as hot as you can stand it, and as much salt as you can tolerate. You stand over the sink and gargle the whole thing until it's gone. It did always seem to help. As the doctor is putting a popsicle stick in Rose's throat, all while unmasked and mere inches from her face, it's here we get into the reason this episode was pulled from the air for a short time. Watching sick people during a pandemic? Not so fun. Watching sick people and others be unsafe about their illness? Stressful. Watching sick people with respiratory pain when over 600,000 people in the U.S. have died from a similar but very different virus? Yeah, I think we're okay skipping this episode for a few months. When the doctor asks about Blanche and Dorothy's symptoms, Dorothy, cranky and sarcastic, says hers are the same, except in her dream she's being chased by Scope, a different brand of mouthwash. Dr. Richmond then makes her way to Blanche, who points out that the progressive girls have done it again by showing a female doctor. Not that Blanche is feeling empowered by that, quite the opposite, really. She's so used to her male doctors, and probably playing doctor, that a lady doctor is making her feel strange. Dr. Richmond then gives us whatever it is when someone makes a joke that could be interpreted as an oh boy, but uses it to put someone in their place. After Blanche rudely tells the doctor how weird it is that she's a woman, Dr. Richmond, who has not only heard all the jokes but has clearly had to work hard to get in her position, explains that medicine is still a man's world, but perhaps Blanche would feel more comfortable knowing she used to be a man. Blanche gives us a physical oh boy by grabbing the doctor's arm and pulling it away from her when she hears that. The doctor laughs, showing Blanche how silly she was about being concerned as to what gender her doctor was. But then the doctor does something really upsetting. She puts the used tongue depressors in her pocket. It's official. The girls have the flu. The flu is an illness that affects your throat, lungs, and nose. Some of the symptoms include a fever, aches, chills, congestion, cough, headache, runny nose, and fatigue. And while Sophia seems to be fine, the ladies really should be more careful as the very young and elderly are very susceptible to the flu and it can easily become dangerous and even deadly. While the common cold and flu are similar respiratory illnesses, the cold is much more mild and doesn't lead to more complications like pneumonia the way the flu does. As the good doc summarizes everything going on, we learn that she came to their house, checked out all three ladies, and diagnosed them, all for a whopping $50. Don't let the $500 I spend a month on insurance, aka literally nothing, hear about that deal. We also learn it's a more serious flu, not just a one- or two-dayer. Nope, this is one that will last them a whole week. On the plus side, they've already been sick a couple of days. On the downside, that means they probably won't be well enough in time for the banquet on Saturday. The ladies all react like their teacher just took away recess. Whining and begging, they ask if there's anything that can be done by Saturday, which by my math means that the day we're in right now is maybe Wednesday? 
I do have to agree with Rose's reaction. How is it we can have things like cinnamon dental floss, but not a cure for the flu? Well, those things are very different, but I'll try to help you out, Rose. Dental floss was actually created in America in the 1800s. Since the daily use of floss didn't come into the picture until about the 1970s, it's safe to say, since I can't find the actual answer, that cinnamon flavoring was fairly new around the mid-80s. Using Teflon, yeah, like nonstick pan material, the floss is created. Then through a process of wax dips and flavor additions, bada boom, bada bing, you got cinnamon floss. Since I'm no expert or scientist, and since this isn't a healthcare show, I'll keep it short and sweet. Basically, there are over 200 variations of the viruses that cause the cold and flu. That makes it pretty much impossible to create a vaccine that could manage it or even medicine that cures it. I don't know about y'all, but not getting sick in the last year from a cold or flu was real nice. So since there isn't a cure, I'm just going to stick to what I know works. Masks and hand washing. Sophia isn't concerned with modern medicine. She thinks a home remedy will do the trick. The girls start to share the ones their mothers made for them when they were younger. Blanche's mom was ahead of her time with putting the natural version of Vicks VapoRub on her neck, a eucalyptus plant, and tied it on with a warm sock, which sounds a little bit dangerous. Rose's mom would sing and, of course, make cookies. The cheesiness of that sends Dorothy over the edge of Sarcastic Mountain. She responds to Rose's Sound of Music-inspired sick plan by saying, I think Michael DeBakey does that before surgery. Michael DeBakey was a trailblazing surgeon. He completed one of the first artery bypass surgeries and created the artificial heart. He was a pioneer in the medical field whose impact is still felt today. And no, he probably didn't start his work with cookies. Sophia is more old school about her home cures. Back home, you didn't go to a doctor. You went to the neighborhood widow, and she had a cure for whatever ailed you. Casually snacking on raisins, Sophia begins to tell the tale of how the miracle-working widow would make a medication for ear infections. But one day, the village idiot got his hands on it. Misunderstanding what he was to do with it, he put the green mixture on his pasta, not his ear. The thing was, it was actually delicious. So being that it was basically medicine on pasta, it didn't sell very well. The writers do such a good job here. You know there's a punchline coming, but you aren't quite sure if it'll be about the idiot, the widow, or if Sophia is just lying through her teeth. It turns out it was the latter. After saying that the village idiot changed the name of the salve to pesto sauce and it sold like hotcakes, Dorothy calls Sophia out for lying. I love so much that Sophia doesn't argue back or defend herself. She's just like, yeah, I'm old. I'm going to tell stories. Actually, the term she uses is colorful, which used to be used to describe any kind of outgoing, expressive person. Now it's actually listed in Psychology Today, and here's what they have to say about it. See if this matches a diagnosis for Sophia. Or me. The colorful personality is a subclinical form of histrionic personality disorder, which refers to a pattern of attention-seeking behaviors featuring exaggerated, even theatrical displays of emotion and shallow relationships. Here are some of the traits of a colorful person. High in most facets of openness to experience and are generally imaginative, emotionally expressive, artistic, inquisitive, and willing to try new things. Low in some facets of neuroticism, tending to be self-assured, not anxious, or emotionally vulnerable, but also tending to act impulsively and to be quick to anger. 
mixed in tendencies regarding agreeableness, they were very low in straightforwardness, modesty, and compliance, suggesting that they are manipulative, arrogant, and boastful, and have little respect for following rules. On the other hand, they can also be somewhat trusting, helpful, and kind-hearted, perhaps when it suits them. Finally, in regards to conscientiousness, they tend to be ambitious and sure of their abilities, but also tend to be disorderly and undisciplined. They do not plan ahead, and they tend to be lax about keeping their obligations. So I'd say a rate about a 65% on there. I'd say 69. <laughs> As, uh, yeah, I heard some, I heard there were some things that were matchy a little bit. Yeah. I'm colorful. What can I say? Self diagnosed. I mean, mental health condition. I, I mean, I would call you colorful also. Lost in a fever, we aren't sure what day it is now, but Dorothy has taken over the couch and is resting with a blanket atop her. From the hallway, an unusually sluggish Blanche wearing a beige scarf and a fabulously bright colored 70s print housecoat over her nightgown. And without a greeting, Blanche asks about her heating pad and if Dorothy has seen it. Heating pad? How should she know where her item is? Before I even get to that, I know you loved that outfit of Blanche's. I've never seen a sick person look so great. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was flowy and dramatic. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really good because you could really accentuate how sick you are with your movements. Yes. Because you could dramatically really, put a hand up. Yeah, she's in so flat much, shoes. Yeah. It's, she's, it's moving with you. She's Yeah, she's not in any of her heels. And she just kind of, and the arms are down and she's kind of like slapping her feet around. Yeah, it's... It's a beautiful outfit. It's a great and it, outfit. yes, uh, a neck scarf. Yeah. Yeah. And you could easily, for her, take the scarf off, pull the robe a little tighter, have her stand up straight, and she's like ready to go out on a date. Oh, yeah. Because she's that fabulous. Yeah. If, uh, if another house called doctor showed up and it was, like, <laughs> it was a man, yeah. Yeah, they would have like cut back to her and she would have had the, like the scarf around, around her waist as a belt. Oh, my God. That would have been so funny. Yeah. Um, we should write for the Golden Girls. He, he wasn't introduced yet, but uh, Dr. Harry next door, Empty Nest, she has such a crush on him. It would have been funny if, if he had existed yet in that universe yeah. to have him come, not, you know, be like, oh, I'm just checking on you guys and be like, and cut back to her. And she's like perfectly put together. <laughs> With a stern, raspy southern drawl, Blanche reaches down to the end of the couch where a cord is hanging down. Picking it up, she asks, Well, if this isn't it, I'd like to know what other electrical appliance you're using under that blanket. What a scandalous joke this is. Even as a kid, I wasn't sure exactly what I was laughing at, but I knew it felt naughty. Invented in the Victorian era, 1869 to be exact, the first vibrators came along. Because the doctors that were treating, a.k.a. manually stimulating women out of hysteria, well, their hands were getting tired. So very openly and only for medical purposes, the vibrator was created. The first ones had generators the size of refrigerators. So I'm guessing they maybe didn't hit the spot out of the gate. Before the 1920s, the vibrator was not even viewed as a sexual tool. That's because there wasn't penetration and it was being used as a medical treatment. So what changed in the 20s? Porn. A vibrator was used in an early pornographic film, forcing the public to stop pretending the vibrator was as publicly appropriate as a walker and redefined it as a sexual tool, therefore making it taboo and not to be discussed. 
By the 1970s, the vibrator was back and actually marketed as a sex toy. And get this, at that time, only 1% of the female population had ever used one. Another fun fact, when invented, the vibrator was only the fifth home appliance to have electricity, beating out <laughs> the vacuum and iron. It wasn't until the infamous Sex in the City Sharper Image episode that vibrators became really mainstream again and options became more available. In the 80s though, it was the Hitachi Magic Wand, Samantha's weapon of choice, that was most widely used at the time. I'm sorry to have talked about vibrators for so long, but it was all really fascinating. It's in this scene we learn that Blanche made the vibrator jokes of the 80s so Samantha could reignite a passion for them in the 90s. The long and the short of it, Yes, Blanche is implying that the cord she is holding is for her magic wand. God bless her. Where's that mindset from the early 1900s where it's like, yeah, she's having an orgasm, but it's for medical purposes and it was fine and no one cared. And then as soon as someone was like an exhibitionist about it and enjoyed it and wasn't just like, it's my medical treatment, but they're like, this is fun. Then they're like, shame, shame. It's just a bummer, man. It's like, ah, oh, it really 100 is. years ago, they didn't care. Yeah, if we had been But able... also, it sounds like the women weren't having fun. No one was having fun. Even the, <laughs> the doctors the weren't doctors. having fun. Is that real? Is that even possible as like humans with sexual drive, unless they were all asexual doctors or something? But you have like a sexual drive and you're doing that to someone and there's just you're like oh i'm just who, trying to get to lunch man i wonder who wrote the uh mm -hmm. the statement that is made mm -hmm. about that's these what things. i'm saying yeah i wonder who if they're like no 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 no, we didn't enjoy it yeah <laughs> heavens no oh, oh i love pounding but not when i'm on the clock <laughs> and then i go home and my wife says she needs the same thing and i say i've had a long day at work and i send her to my colleague down the street <laughs> my neighbor <laughs> Bartholomew with an F. <laughs> the ladies stare each other down as the audience roars with laughter. They knew the joke was naughty, too. With the plug in Blanche's hand, Dorothy knows she's busted. Without confessing or apologizing, she just tells Blanche, you can't have it. Again with Dorothy's jerkiness. She has stolen Blanche's heating pad and proclaims that she needs it for her congested chest. She doesn't care about Blanche's. She cares about hers. Blanche, groggy and sick, still doesn't miss an opportunity to burn Dorothy after she claims to only care about her own chest. Blanche agrees. Yep, you care about your chest, because nobody else does. Ouch. Unable to get her property back from Dorothy, Blanche makes her way onto the couch and under the blanket with her. As she gets comfortable, Sophia comes walking out holding the fabric she is still trying to turn into a dress for Dorothy. Dorothy's realistic side is coming through as usual, only it's a bit more defeatist than her usual we-can-do-this attitude. She knows there is no way any of them will be feeling better by Saturday. Being as warm and caring as usual, Sophia asks if, since she can't make it, she could have Dorothy's date. Of course, take it all. She only needs a thermometer and her one working nostril. Rose comes in from the kitchen with exciting news. She's found her old home remedy book, which is a cure for everything. Although it might not have the cure for Dorothy and Blanche's crankiness, they're just being so colicky. For some unexplainable reason, Rose thinks it's a good time to tell the story of Dennis, her 16-year-old cousin who got his hair stuck in the hay baler. Unsurprisingly, it only takes that much of the story to get the other ladies to bark at her to stop. They're sick, they're miserable, and they are sick of hearing her stories that make them feel miserable. 
While the ladies pick on her, Rose declares she's not going to let them bring her down. They're the Gloomy Gusses who want to rain on her parade, and she's not having it. Gloomy Gus was one of the first characters in a newspaper comic strip. Dating back to 1900, Happy Hooligan was the star of and brother to Gus. Happy was just that, and Gloomy brought everything down. Now, 121 years later, we still use the term to mean a party pooper or an Eeyore, a sad person that is maybe being annoying about it. As far as raining on parades go, the phrase is pretty straightforward. I'm having a grand old time, the parade, and you're coming in with your negative vibes or bad news or crappy demeanor, and it's raining on my parade. When you hear that phrase, you might think of a song from the 1964 musical Funny Girl starring Barbara Streisand. That's because that is the first known use of the term. There's no history of it being in print or song or used at all until that song was released. Now that's a fun fact. Dorothy is, not to anyone's surprise, totally annoyed at Rose. She's as sick as she and Blanche are, but she's all chipper. What gives? Well, Rose has been concocting things from the family medicine book. That's where she got the recipe for her hot toddy. While there are a lot of variations of the hot toddy, the basics are hot water, honey, lemon juice, maybe a cinnamon stick or maple syrup, and sugar, and of course, whiskey. The alcohol in a hot toddy can suppress your immune system and even add to dehydration. But the lemon provides vitamin C, the water is hydrating, honey soothes your throat and can have antimicrobial properties, and the heat can soothe, comfort, and relax your body. So a hot virgin toddy might be the best bet, or just enough whiskey to help you rest so your body can heal. Passing the drink to Dorothy, she nearly chokes on it as it was made with perhaps a bit too much whiskey. She says it should have an octane rating, which is in regards to our gasoline. It's a clever way of saying that drink is strong. But you didn't need to tell Rose that. She made it. She's well aware as to why she's feeling so good. Blanche could maybe benefit from a sip of the drink as she starts to yell at the ill Dorothy for blowing her nose. Rose is getting a little more tipsy as time passes, even leading to her roasting Dorothy. When defending her need to blow her nose, Rose throws in, or is that a banana? I don't think Dorothy or B's nose was that big. I mean, if you stare at it, it's maybe on the longer side, but I always liked it. Get your mean drunk butt out of here, Rose. Before Dorothy can muster the strength to get off the couch and kill Rose, Blanche breaks up the fight because it's time for her favorite soap opera, Another World. Premiering in 1964, Another World was a soap opera on NBC. Interesting that it was chosen, or more likely it was demanded to be used, as what Blanche was wanting to watch, as just a year or so prior, the show had finally recovered from some ratings issues in the early 80s. That's some sneaky product placement right there. Another World ran until 1999 after an astonishing 8,891 episodes. Coco, were you or your mom or sister or anyone in your family ever a soap opera person? When I was about 12, there was a soap opera that would come on in the morning as I was getting ready for school, like high school, I mm -hmm. think, maybe eighth grade. And it was called Swan's Crossing. Okay. And I don't know how long it was on for, but it was like, I think one of the first things that Sarah Michelle Geller was in. So that was how I was introduced to her. Oh. Um, and I, I was very into that. And then there was, I feel like I might have watched California Dreams. Oh, Whatever the crazy yeah. one was that was always on the soup. I watched a little yeah. bit of that. <laughs> and I think my sister was into... I think days of our lives when we were younger, uh, but I never, I never really caught any of it. And and yeah, my mom, no one I know really was ever super into that stuff. Swan's Crossing 
had 65 episodes. It ran from June to September of 1992. It's so incredibly Canadian. It's literally a few months. For, wait, how, how many? June to September. Well, I saw them a lot. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, Mira Sorvino. Whoa. Um, I don't know these other names. Who's this guy named Shane? Shane McDermott. Great star of a movie called Airborne about rollerblading. Gary Bauman. Bauman. He's a character actor. I've yeah, seen that's him familiar. Times. That name is familiar. Uh, Brittany Daniel. Yeah. And Stacy Mosley. Mm. Mosley. Well. So there you go. Yeah, I loved it. All three months of it, you devoured. We should try to find that. It's on Tubi. Let's watch some. <laughs> That'd be a funny Patreon. We'll do a. I'll, I'm going to do a whole series. I'm doing a podcast on <laughs> Swan's, Swan's Crossing. Crossing. It's 65 episodes long. You're going to love it. Dictator Dorothy then literally stands her ground, modeling her I was christened when I was 50 nightgown to yell at Blanche that she can't watch her show because she got to choose yesterday. Blanche argues that because she watched Another World yesterday, she has to watch it today. That's how soap operas work. But Dorothy won't allow it, and she proclaims she will be taking over the TV. The TV no one was using before Blanche said it was time for her program. I have to agree with Blanche here. Dorothy is, in fact, the meanest sick person. I don't agree that she's the most unattractive. Okay, maybe her nightgown is. Drunken Rose doesn't think they should be fighting over the TV because there is so much more they could be doing. They could play games, listen to music, bake. Things that probably only sound appealing to her because she's tipsy. The anger Dorothy exhibited towards Blanche and the TV is now going from Blanche to Rose. We're already bummed about missing the banquet dinner, and now we're stuck with the hand-holding, song-singing, let's-make-everything-sunshine-and-rainbows Rose, who is treating this like a Girl Scout jamboree. I was only a Girl Scout for a couple of years. I was more on Blanche's side of things. Can we just watch TV instead of singing about crafts? I don't think I ever made it to a formal jamboree, but I did go to many an event where I just wanted it to be over. A fond memory I had was one where I was put at the cat's cradle station. You know, the little game where you have strings around your fingers? And I did that with people for hours. So that's something. And you were never any kind of scout. I mean, I don't know if I could, at, an, at a young age, catch the vibe. <laughs> but I was... I was just not into it. A lot of it, too, was that I just didn't want to really be away from home. I didn't want to go to camp. I didn't want to take oh, trips away. Yeah. I was like, I had no interest in that as a kid. Zero. Rose's toddy is really giving her some chutzpah. After being asked to not be so Girl Scout-esque, she makes an actual Girl Scout joke by saying she was just trying to be kind pausing before going into some of the Girl Scout laws of being courteous and helpful. The Girl Scout laws actually state, I will do my best to be honest and fair, friendly and helpful, considerate and caring, courageous and strong, and responsible for what I say and do, and to respect myself and others, respect authority, use resources wisely, make the world a better place, and be a sister to every Girl Scout. And with that is the promise, which I still have memorized after 30 years, on my honor, I will try to serve God and my country, to help people at all times, and to live by the Girl Scout law. After making that joke, Dorothy gangs up with Blanche to attack Rose and her chipper demeanor. Rose fights back, making a great point. Do you know how much I've had to drink just to be somewhat pleasant around you two jerks? This leads to an explosion of emotion. 
Sick and frustrated, the ladies all separate, headed to their rooms. As they start down the hall, Sophia comes out of it, excited to share her good news. She has a date. Consumed in their own self-pity and petty arguments, they don't even acknowledge her. They simply walk away and slam their doors. It's somber music when we return to the house to find Dorothy in the kitchen, seated at the table, and she's enjoying her favorite beverage, orange juice. Really, watch the orange juice intake on this show. It's constant, and it's very impressive. Rose walks past Dorothy, who now is wearing a similarly bright and patterned robe as Blanche had been wearing the day before, and she opens the fridge door. Realizing the juice isn't there, she asks Dorothy if there's any left. In one of the truly meanest things someone could do to someone, I mean that as a level of disrespect, not comparing Dorothy's choices to, like, Hitler or something, she hears the question before she proceeds to pour the last of the juice, more than enough for Rose to have had some, into her own glass before responding with, nope, we're all out. If someone did that to me, I really don't know if I could ever speak to them again. Not because I'm petty or something, it's just so unfathomably disrespectful. Blanche joins them while wearing her iconic periwinkle robe and nighty combo, the one with the lace collar and lace flowers across it, and she is pissed. With even more intensity than what she had during the heating pad interrogation, Blanche demands to know who took her vaporub. Rose immediately and somewhat proudly takes the blame. Yeah, I took it, even though I already had Vicks on my chest. I used yours. She claims to have done it out of revenge for Blanche losing her NyQuil measuring cup. Ah, but it hadn't been Blanche who had lost the cup. Dorothy claims she took it because being mean to Rose made her feel better? Excuse you? Somebody needs to get Dorothy a psychopathy test right now. Rose's response is perfectly valid here. She tells Dorothy to go to hell. Well, not exactly hell, she tells her to go to H-E double hockey sticks. I was unable to find where this phrase actually originated. I'm going to take a guess and say it was from areas like St. Olaf. You have the exposure to hockey sticks via ice hockey, and you have the uptight religious folks that won't even let you say the word hell. This, of course, only serves as fodder for the girls to mock, Blanche even teasing her that her ears were burning from such serious swearing. With a saunter across the kitchen, Blanche goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rose before calling her a nerd, which of course makes Rose start to cry. They're all sick, cranky, and fed up with all of it. Realizing they have taken it too far, a pact is made that they will be nicer to each other so they can actually help each other get through being sick. The nerd, I mean Rose, then asks for a group hug. Walking into the kitchen, Sophia is wearing a very fashionable, perhaps polyester taupe dress with a blue cardigan, and she wants the group hug to end before, oh boy, the neighbors get the wrong idea. Lighten up, Sophia. Sophia has come to the kitchen with news. First, the bad. She called to cancel the reservation for the banquet. The potential good news? There was disappointment that the girls wouldn't be there, perhaps implying one of them was to win the big award of the night, the Best Friend of the Friends of Good Health Award. It's as precious as an Oscar. This moment gives Sophia another great opportunity for a comedic volley when explaining that it was what the woman didn't say that gave her the idea someone won the award. But when asked what she didn't say, Sophia doesn't know she didn't say it. Fed up with the nonsense, Sophia walks away. Blanche points out all the things Rose has done in the past year that would warrant her winning the award. 
But then Rose does the same for Blanche. They've both volunteered their time and created programs. But it was Blanche who came up with the idea and implemented being the volunteer CPR dummy for the fireman's first aid training. So she does have a leg up on Rose. And maybe two. After building one another up, Rose and Blanche realize they each have a 50-50 chance of winning. Besides, who else has done as much as they have? Waiting for her showers of compliments and praise, Dorothy starts to <clears throat> clear her throat for attention-seeking purposes. Not catching her drift, Rose asks her to please cover her cough with a handkerchief. Fed up, Dorothy starts going through her own list of good deeds, one of which was that she sold 49 cases of peanut brittle. Blanche pushes back on that one. This award is a big deal. You think selling some candy is up to par? Dorothy counters. Maybe not, but are you telling me that slipping your tongue to half the firemen in the county is worthy? This leaves Rose as the only real option as a winner, so she's decided she is going to that banquet, sick or not. Welp, that group hug and pact of kindness sure didn't last long. Before we know it, Blanche is mad at Rose, Dorothy's mad at Blanche, and it's all blowing up in an explosion of rudeness. Their competitive nature is wreaking havoc once more. After Rose and Blanche squabbled over who of the two of them would win, Dorothy once again throws her name out. She has done just as much equally important work. Rose finally agrees. The only thing keeping her from winning? She's just not very likable. Torn down once more, Dorothy turns to her mother to ask for real. Do you think I have a chance at winning the award? Being the supportive mother she can sometimes be, Sophia assures her. Of course you could win, as long as they don't have a swimsuit portion. While usually I'd be mad at any kind of body shaming or jokes at this, after Dorothy's stunt with the orange juice, it's kind of warranted. Well, la-ti-da, pinkies are up as we're outside a banquet hall while watching all the fancy people enter the building. When we're brought inside, we find table after table of fancy food, fancy people, and horrible fashion. As we make our way to the girls' table, we see that Sophia was able to finish Dorothy's dress in time, and it looks wonderful. Making the saddest little mouse noises, Rose lets out a dainty sneeze that is just so precious, it's even complimented on by her date. Then Dorothy sneezes, and let's just say it's not quite as dainty. As a husky sneezer myself, I say, good for you. You're sneezing to get that stuff out of there. Put your face in your elbow or use a napkin like she did and just get it gone. Maybe not so gone that your date doesn't want to eat a salad, but still. Coco, scary sneezes. I know mine frighten you sometimes. I get that from my grandmother. She was a scream sneezer. It runs in the family. Yeah, both my mother and father, um, I, I think, could stop the heart of a passing bird <laughs> with their sneezes. They're so, I, I wouldn't, I, I do not think I could approximate one on microphone. I just can't. You just can't. It would hurt too many people. It's awful. Both of them will just scare, scare a house awake in the middle of the night or early a.m. with a, just an awful, awful. Just a scream, right? And Dorothy's got. <laughs> I have sharp sneezes that people think are coughs. I, people have yeah. been thinking that my sneezes are coughs and my coughs are sneezes oh. my whole life. How do you get They've also it? been thinking my name is Jeff. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's Coco. It's a cough. It's a sneeze. It's a Coco. 
Rose's date offers her a sucrets, which is a throat lozenge, one of those that numbs everything except the pain, but she passes. She's still sucking on a Smith's Brothers. I think that's like a naughty double entendre. Blanche makes a delayed appearance because it's always better to arrive at a party late than pregnant. Blanche looks surprisingly demure. Covered in silver sparkles, her silhouette is unusually flowy and a little bit boxy for her, but she still looks fabulous, of course. She attempts to compliment the girls, but quickly gives up. Rose, in her rainbow fish-inspired dress with iridescent sparkles and all, starts right back up with the argument about how she will be winning the award. Dorothy lets out a cackle that quickly leads to a cough. Okay, a little sidebar promo time. As a person that used to suffer with this due to, shall we say, my hobby of recreational inhalants, I want to take a moment to promote the most amazing, laugh-saving, and potentially life-saving creation. It's called Mouthpiece, peace like the world peace. It is a piece of silicone that fits over anything, pipes, pre-rolls, vapes, you name it, and it filters out all the bad stuff. I have only partaken in such activities for a couple of years, and my laugh was like Dorothy's cough. I could get a ha-ha out, but then I would cough until I was in pain. After using my mouthpiece for only a couple of months, my cough is like probably 80% lessened and my laugh is back. So shop small and go check out Mouthpiece. Thank you. Finding her way to the table via Dorothy's hacking, Sophia arrives in a beautiful, bright, colorful, shimmery dress that I need in my size. She introduces her date, Raoul, who tells the table it's a pleasure to be there. Before any more pleasantries can be exchanged, Blanche eyes her date and gets up to retrieve him. While trying to make small talk, Raoul starts to answer every question with, It's a pleasure to be here making Dorothy quickly realize English is not his first language, so she's curious where her mother met him. It's a tale as old as time. An 80-something-year-old Sophia had a good day at the dog tracks and saw Raoul, who owned the flower shop next to the tracks. She used her winnings to rent him a suit, and here they are. Blanche returns with her date, Tommy Cochran. Tommy is an author, an author that has been deemed as exciting as Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer is one of the most successful novelists in American history. Not only did he write novels like The Executioner's Song, which then became an Emmy Award-winning film, which he wrote the screenplay for, he was also an award-winning journalist, play producer, film director, multiple Pulitzer Prize winner, and a co-founder of the newspaper The Village Voice, and so much more. Sorry, Blanche, I doubt this date is a guy of that caliber. There are theories that say you can tell someone is lying by the level of detail they provide in the story. So if someone is to say, sorry, I was late, there was horrible traffic on the five, you wouldn't think anything of it. But if that same person started to say, sorry, I was late, I was driving on the five and I saw this wild red car that cut me off and I was like, what? And I followed them. Yeah, that might be a lie. So when Blanche starts going on and on about her date and how they met in a park and he came over to autograph the book she was reading, that's a no for me, dog. I don't ever wish for people to be taken down a peg, but when it happens, oh boy, is it fun to watch. In this case, it's when Blanche's date, the author, starts to get yelled at by the catering manager, yelling at him that it's time for the main course, informing all of us that Blanche walked around the corner, found the first hot waiter, paid him 25 bucks, and talked him into playing her date. It's not often she's forced to be humble, so you kind of love to see it. Blanche starts to explain why she didn't have a date that the man she was supposed to take to the dinner saw her and said he wouldn't go because she looked so bad. What? 
First off, she looks wonderful. So what is that about? Secondly, what a beep and beep. Who says that to a person? The humbling embarrassment of being caught with the waiter doesn't last very long, as Blanche may have been stood up by her date because of her looks, but at least she still looks better than the rest of the girls. Sitting with Dorothy is a real charmer named Dave, who at the dinner table starts sharing the story of the drunken night that led to him getting a scorpion tattoo on his stomach. Having him around is not much better than not having a date at all. I've never really had anything like that happen to me. Have you, you, you seem like someone who's, one, been to tons of weddings and banquets and uh, events. And two, I know are someone who is ju- just dates, sh- just ugh. <laughs> the <Thank> worst. You. <laughs> no, uh, no, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, <laughs> no, that's accurate. Okay, cool. That's fair. I date whoever or used to, um, two and they're quick. One was an ex-boyfriend who, even though he was invited to my best friend's wedding, I was like, we're broken up. You're not going. He's like, no, I was invited and I'm going. So he spent the whole trip trying to make it like a reconnecting trip to fix things. And then he kind of purposely passed out at the end of the wedding. And so like the fire fire department came and uh, we ended up flirting with them, of course. And the paramedics like doing we had the wedding photographer take pictures of us like um, around the um, stretcher before they loaded him up. And then when he talked about it, he's like, do you want to know why I passed out? And I was like, most people don't know why they passed out. I'm going to guess you're an alcoholic who was in Vegas and you got overheated. He's like, no, that should have been us up there. And I was like, barf, get away from me. You just <laughs> open the back of the ambulance and jump out. <laughs> oh, God, no, I didn't go with him. I that know. was for his sister to deal with. I know. That was just a fantasy. <laughs> was, I just love the idea. Of no, you. I open the door and push the yeah. stretcher out and he just so rolls long. down the street. And then eventually tips over and gets That's hurt. That's true. Oh, no. The second and way more embarrassing one was I went to pick up my boyfriend at the time. We were going to a very close friend's wedding. It was a small wedding. And he's like, "Okay, I'm home from work at this time. And I was like, "Okay, you have to be ready to go by this time. I'll be in your driveway to pick you up. And I went there. And of course, he wasn't even done with work yet. And he finally finished. And we were running late. And he threw some clothes on. And we got there. And he had done, which normally I like as a look, but it didn't work in this case, as it was a very fancy wedding. He did the like the hoodie under a blazer thing. And then I don't even remember if he even bothered with a button up or just a T-shirt. And we went and we were late. And so there were only like literally two seats. The wedding was happening. I didn't get to see my friend walk down the aisle. I like it was happening. So we run and sit down and I heard a guy lean over to his wife or whoever and go, you know, you were worried about. But at least I don't look like that guy. And I was like. I was so embarrassed to be late. I was so mad at his outfit. Yeah. I was so, like, I was just so, I was, that was truly one of the times I was most embarrassed, like, embarrassed, ashamed. Dave is played by a man named William Court. William passed in 1999, but before that, he worked on some outstanding projects like Kojak, Dukes of Hazard, Three's Company, Family Ties, Growing Pains, Heathers, and Ghost. Finishing his career as Headmaster Wallace Thorvlad on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And he is one of our many extra extras. So he'll be back in a few seasons after he takes a test drive. From the Bronx, Rose's date is actor Ray Reinhardt. In his nearly 70-year-long acting career, he had roles on shows like Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-O, and The A-Team. He was also in Who's the Boss, Matlock, Star Trek, and The Hunt for Red October. 
Born in Argentina in 1952 is Sofia's date Raul, a.k.a. Marcelo Tubert. After moving to Los Angeles when he was seven, Marcelo continues to work in television, movies, and as a voiceover actor and in theater. Getting his start on Heart to Heart, Marcelo also appeared in St. Elsewhere, La La, The Smurfs, Moonlighting, Captain Planet, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Home Improvement, Frasier, The Wild Thornberries, King of the Hill, Bioshock 2, NCIS Los Angeles, and so, so, so much more. Blanche's Tommy Cochran, the non-author, is played by Tony Carrero. Starting his career out with a bang in 1986, Tony appeared on the show Cheers and followed that up with Family Ties. And I've actually talked about Tony before, very briefly, from when he played the waiter in the episode A Little Romance. He has been in so many fun shows like Sister Sister, Wings, and Home Improvement. I know this isn't the first time I've talked about Tony, and guess what? It won't be the last. You'll have to wait a little longer than 72 hours to hear about that one, though. As I mentioned, when I first talked about him, he was in Liar Liar, one of my all-time favorite movies. He plays the cop who pulls Jim Carrey over before he recites that speech. Roll that beautiful bean footage, Coco. You know why I pulled you over? Depends on how long you were following me. Why don't we just take it from the top? Here goes. I sped. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. I changed lanes in the intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. Is that all? No. I have unpaid parking tickets. Funnily enough, the most famous of all the extras in today's episode is the waiter who comes up to Blanche's date and yells at him to get back to work. You might have thought his voice was familiar, but maybe couldn't place it. That is the voice of Dom Herrera, the comedian and character actor that is one of those you'll know when you see him. This was only Dom's third credited role, and we'll see him again before the season is through. Maybe you know his voice work, like on Rocco's Modern Life, Dr. Katz, Hey Arnold, or Barnyard. Or maybe you know him as the Boston Bruins fan on Seinfeld, or as Tony the Chauffeur from The Big Lebowski. So he says, my wife's a pain in the ass. She's always busting my friggin' agates. My daughter's married to a Jadrul loser bastard. I got a rash so bad on my ass, I can't even sit down. If you know me, I can't complain. <laughs> Miserable and sickly, the lady's attention is drawn to the MC of the event, played by actress Silvana Gallardo. While she passed away at only 58 years old in 2012, she got to work on shows like NYPD Blue, ER, Babylon 5, Days of Our Lives, Falcon Crest, and of course, La La. <laughs> it's time for the one thing important enough to get the women to drag themselves out of bed in their condition, the Best Friends of the Friends of Good Health Award. But before we can get to the winner, it's announced that Don Johnson, star of the show Miami Vice, was unable to make it. I do wish that, based off of what we learned about Rose's passion for the show when she talked about it in the episode Nice and Easy, that they had let her make a bigger deal out of all of that, that he was going to be there, that he ended up not going. Even though the actor couldn't make it, they did send his hideous jacket and pastel shirt combo of what he would have worn, garnering applause and oohs from the audience. There's something very The Simpsons about the way the crowd yes. applauds uh, a set of clothing. That it's such it's a funny very joke. Simpsons. Yeah. yeah, that they're like, but look, well, this is what he would have worn tonight. Then, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it is very funny. Like, and again, I can't tell if the writers were just like that would be funny, or if they were making more points than 
what it's perceived or if I just is that part of what's enjoyable about the show is being able to make things more. Are they saying something about pop culture yeah that people are willing to like lose their minds over a t-shirt they'll line up they'll like line up to look at the Fonz's jacket yeah yeah which i did see at the smithsonian and it was <laughs> a religious experience <laughs> a. rose wishes everyone luck even though she knows she's going to win blanche wishes she would just shut up in a stunning purple dress with black sequin shoulders and one of those capes that are built in, our MC Silvana is all set to announce the winner. Drumroll, please. After all of the arguments and anger surrounding the award, it's Sophia Petrillo who is announced as the winner, shocking Dorothy into a celebratory holler. Sophia stands up in my dream wedding gown and leans into the sweetest kiss with Raoul. They really look like they have a connection and are celebrating the joy of that moment, which is probably why Sophia went back for a second kiss before going to the podium. Holding her generically shaped goblet with the guy on top trophy, and only a few inches taller than the podium, Sophia starts her speech. She's shocked she was able to raise so much money as the ladies look on with smiles and applause. Sophia continues to speak. She's grateful for her friends in the world and for her friends at home. Speaking slowly and clearly, Sophia goes on about the love and support she has from her friends, that she's not only lucky, but she's aware of how lucky she is to have that, especially at her age. She was able to win the award because she took all the love and friendship she was given and passed it on to others. Before stepping down, Sophia asks everyone over the age of 75 to look at their dates, and then look at hers, who stands up and blows her a kiss. Sophia is relishing the moment of getting to show off her much younger and very hot date. While listening to Sophia's speech, the three ladies at the table have been overcome with emotion. They reach out to each other, holding hands. It's a smidge awkward here, like the director didn't tell the extras to just go back to talking at their tables, so they're all just facing the stage. But in the silent room, everyone is eavesdropping on the ladies who, after being so moved by Sophia's words, make up their friendship with cheers and a sneeze. Friendships are hard. Some of them are as strong as the Teflon of our dental floss and can withstand anything. Others are only as strong as the tissue we use when we have a cold. It's kind of funny how this episode feels, at least to me, like an encapsulated version of quarantine. Again, why it was off the air. You have people fearful of getting sick. Then they're stuck in a house together. Add to that the stress and disappointment of missing all the big events you were excited for. It's easy to see how the last year and a half has been difficult for every relationship. To be completely candid, I've had some serious issues with my friends. Now we're all trying to get back to what was considered normal. Going from pouring the last of the orange juice to cheersing at a dinner is all fine and dandy in the sitcom world, but in the real world, those relationships could use a review. Rose, do you really want to be friends with someone that steals hot pads, measuring cups, and juice? Do you want to live with someone that gets in your face and calls you a nerd before lying about their date? It's okay to reevaluate relationships of every kind. If things aren't meeting your needs, that doesn't mean you need to lash out or be upset. It means you need to talk it out before hugging it out. Who gives a damn what the neighbors think? This pandemic isn't over with, folks, so stay safe, stay healthy, get vaccinated. I can't bear the thought of missing another awards show. Until next time, thank you for watching, and thank you for being a friend. 
Be sure to join us next week when we talk, what in the filming order is this monstrosity with job hunting? Treehouse tugs. (sighs) Good old fashioned southern tugs. In the treehouse. I don't think I've ever heard you do a southern accent. Well, welcome, welcome. And get me a mint julep at once. It's good. You've got that, like, old drawl back in the throat. I do it like I have a lollipop in my mouth. (laughs) Yes, I think there were some treehouse tugs. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mmm. Delicious. Because my future is so bright. And well, yeah, and we're talking in the mid 90s, so we didn't have the underwear technology we have now. It was like you kind of had cotton briefs or whitey tidies. Yeah, you had, yeah, you had boxers. Just, just that's what, oh, that's oh, what yeah. I meant. Cotton yeah, boxers. cotton boxers where they're just, they're just, ha- they're just hanging on your body, square fabric so around awful. you. The worst. <laughs> if anyone out there is wearing those, <laughs> turn yourself into the authorities at once. Not so much British, but a little bit of a, I'm a formal actor. Can I do it? Yeah. I don't think so. Can I? Is that it? Oh, a little bit. Oh, I am Cary Grant. (laughs) And I am acting at you and I have a tan face. Maybe we'll just have Cary Grant give us a line here. Cary Grant, Cary Grant, I'm singing in the rain. Gene Kelly. So I'm curious, like, I wonder if there are people that realize, like, oh, I don't drink because I'm a mean drunk. And it's like, oh, I'm actually pretty mean when I'm sick. Basically, I wonder if Dorothy's a total jerk when she drinks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that she is. Yeah. And that's canon. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear it now. It kind of changes your inhibitions in a weird way. Absolutely, I'm going to do a truth, study. Yeah. Someone do a study at a so university. Good, and it would be the same thing if I were drunk shopping. Yeah, you wouldn't to... think about, Yeah, I like, don't want to talk the, to this uh, person. Hey, where are the funnels and the plastic tubing so I can keep this party going <laughs> alone, which is where I like to drink. Anywhere I am is alone when I'm drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Twins. <laughs> Drinking's awesome. <laughs> I, I didn't come here to be reviewed. <laughs> I'm not here for a parole hearing. <laughs> I'm here to help you with this podcast. First off, you're co-starring in it. Secondly, uh, that wasn't a review. That was a clarification. <laughs> I'll clarify this. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, in regards to conscientious, conscientiousness. Finally, in regards to conscientious, conscientiousness. Finally, in regards to conscientiousness. <laughs> I didn't have it then. Finally, in regards to conscientiousness. Well, then I have to find my spot. <laughs> okay. Finally. I know. What am I gonna do here? Uh, we gotta finish the script, or they're gonna fire us. Oh yeah, it's you like... look. At, I'm sure mine is devastating. Would be to me. Don't send me screenshots of that or anything. You or of anyone what? listening. What those traits would be, and 
Of what your mental health diagnosis is? Yeah, whatever my... Oh, I can tell you anytime you want to know. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I know. Yeah. Freaking idiot. <laughs> from the hallway, an unusually sluggish... From the hallway, an unusually sluggish... Wow. <laughs> Why did I write this like this? From the hallway, an unusually sluggish... Who's now wearing a similarly bright and patterned robe as Blanche was been... Oh. My aunt went to a Michael Blue Bay Blue. <laughs> Hello? <sighs> my Blanche went to a Michael Ublé Bompert. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.